think we should do uh like a surreal comedy troupe called the Peterettes. <laughs> the Peterettes. <laughs> I like it. Some lowbrow humor for you guys. Amazing. Oh, lo- lowbrow. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and some people call me the Duke and Earl of Dollar Bin-themed music history podcasts. I am one of those people. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, he does it all the time. Can confirm. (laughs) I haven't referred to his uh, Christian name in... In many years at this point. DJ Hard Bargain. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I've been thinking about getting a new pet, guys. And I just want something a little non-standard, a little unique. All right, what are you you going for? I think I'm going to adopt a bison. Nice. An American bison? <laughs> yeah, they're just, they're sturdy, they're, you know, reliable characters. It makes a um, statement? It makes a statement. It's it's just two tons of fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there it is. Love it. A plus. I am co-host Peter Cook, Minister of Interior Design, and our guest today is a clinical social worker, educator, and therapist based in the great city of Philadelphia, where she also finds time to DJ at some of the hottest spots in the city. Welcome back to I'd Buy That for a Dollar for your third appearance, Lola Kinks. Hey, everyone. Oh, my gosh. I'm very excited to be back, especially for this episode. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what record are we going to talk about today? Oh, Wow. Um, We are going to be talking about the phenom queen of disco, Sylvester's album Step 2. Step 2. Released on the Fantasy label in the year 1978. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, it's my, uh, in August, in my birth month. So I, I mean, there's so much about this album that is imprinted upon my heart and soul and it was just it made so much sense to want to bring this one on here it's one that i also still can't believe is in dollar bins like and just thinking i mean we've talked about this um i mean all the different albums that y'all have featured it's still like so fascinating to me with all the gold that is on all these different records but like this one and it's impact is just out of control so yeah that's the one that i am bringing to y'all today wonderful yeah this was a big hit album it peaked at number seven on the r&b charts and also reached number 28 on the billboard 200 where do we want to start to give people a taste of the sound of sylvester 
Yeah, so I would love to start with a track um, that, very interestingly enough, um, was written originally by Burt Bacharach, R.A.P., mm -hmm. um, and this track is called I Took My Strength From You. All right, well, listen to that. Come back and talk more. Side B, track two, I Took My Strength From You. I just want to say, God bless the church, guys. I'm not not a religious man myself, but they just keep giving us amazing singers. Oh, yes, that uh, Sylvester first found his passion and love for music in the church. Oh, and there's gospel influence there. Hardcore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole reason why he had the backup singers known as Two Tons of Fun was because of that authentic gospel feel that they were able to bring into the music, kind of mm. taking him back to his musical roots as the, the bedrock of the sound. Yeah, and I love he, he you know, we now, well, we know them as another name after Two Tons of Fun, which we can get to, um, but I love that he called like Azora Rhodes and Martha Wash, um, Two Tons of Fun, he called them his girls or the girls. And, mm. you know, there was like that connection there that like sonically they were, there was such beautiful alignment with like their voices, but then also, yeah, like that influence, that gospel influence was definitely there. And it makes me think about like every time I hear this track, I mean, my heart just swells and I, I, get, I do this like where I throw one hand up in the air and it's like, yes, like 
testify. And I am also not a religious person. I actually, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic, so in a whole different style of song than than this. Um, but, you know, about uh, Sylvester, I mean, like you said, he grew up in the church. Um, his, his mother uh, was Pentecostal. And so he grew up in that faith. And while he certainly got his uh, singing chops, you know, certainly kind of came growing in that space. There was so much more that happened in that space that also, you know, would put a mark on the rest of his life. It was also during that time in church, growing up in the Watts district of Los Angeles, that he eventually ended up becoming, uh, in some ways, like excommunicated or like pushed out of the church because, you know, he had grown up being and uh, presenting himself differently than folks were used to, especially at this like black Pentecostal church. And, you know, he was not interested in a lot of the things that a lot of the young boys were that, you know, he was growing up in church with. And so, you know, he got a lot of his inspiration from folks like his grandmother, his grandmother, Juju, who was like a big, plays a, a huge role in his life. And why one of the reasons why I wanted to do this song, um, first I took my strength from you as well, like the lyrics kind of lend itself to being more kind of like a, you know, a love song. Um, it made me think about like the impact that his grandmother had on his life. And she was actually a person who, as he was coming into himself, he was identifying more with, you know, being a gay boy um, at that time. And his mother was not a fan of that, didn't like it at all. And his grandmother was someone who really appreciated him and loved him as he was. And so I just have a lot of inspiration, take a lot of inspiration from from that, um, for someone who went through so much at such a young age, including being abused by someone in his church. So... Yeah, that's that's kind of like where my head's at when I think about this this track. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting knowing that he has this trauma from the church and family life, but he also has these really positive experiences. Okay. And so many people will often take something like that and be like, "Well, the trauma is too much. I just want to like not think about that part of my life at all." But it's like he's filtering the positive out of his past experiences and embracing that and just choosing to center this, you know, joy and positivity in this like fierce spirit with the yeah. music. Yeah, he strikes me as an icon for self-expression and holding true to yourself. Mhm. That's what I've learned in studying the story of Sylvester for this episode. Well, and also just thinking about how he was at such a young age, there are folks who have said about him, like he knew himself so well, like he felt so comfortable with being who he was. And at a time where for many of us, you know, when we're, you know, growing into ourselves, those very impressionable ages, like preteen, teens, you know, we may be a bit more awkward, but he was so fiercely identified with like, who he was truly his most authentic self and it makes me think about like the the crew that he was rolling with when he was a teen and you know they i, I think having that connection to those uh you know fellow like teens preteens who felt so strongly identified with who they were at their core 
like that was such a gift and helped him along in his way. Absolutely. So let's talk about what everybody's previous experience with Sylvester and this record was. Lola, how long have you been a Sylvester fan and how long do you remember when you bought Step 2 by chance? Oh, goodness. I know that I have two copies. (laughs) So I think I think it's one that anytime I see it, I do like to pick it up because it's one that I like to share with folks. I would say at this, so I picked up the record much later than the first time I ever heard of Sylvester. So I probably picked up the record maybe like 10 plus years ago, but I had first heard of Sylvester when I was a kid because one of the other tracks that we'll be featuring, like there was no way that I was ever gonna go my childhood life without ever hearing it just with my own like fascination um, growing up and understanding myself also as like a queer identified person, you know, and and music that is, you know, was created by other queer identified folks. I was like so fascinated and uh, found my way to Sylvester. So I would say sometime around like my being a kid is when I first heard of Sylvester and then learned more as I was a teen and then came back to like buying the records probably sometimes in my twenties or thirties. Nice. So a fairly long association and love of the music and spirit of Sylvester. Mm-hmm. Love to bring on guests that have a personal connection with the record we're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. What about y'all? Uh, so, Peter, Jeremy, were, yeah, were you guys familiar with even some of the singles? Did any of this, especially the main single off this record, sound familiar? No, I didn't know this at all. Yeah, disco's a real blind spot for me, like pure disco. From like 1980 on, I'm into some of that stuff. Yeah, if I'm like putting together a dance playlist or something, I'm like mining that stuff or like 60s soul or like very modern. But there's, I just have like these blind spots where I don't know like any of it. So this is in that realm for me. Well, it's, and it's funny because this is the first album I've heard by Sylvester, you know, listen to the first few tracks. Oh, it's a straight up disco album, but the one that we just mm-hmm. listened to, the one that we kicked it off with, I took my strength from you. Not really a disco song at all. <laughs> and, and true more in the vein of the music that he had made previously. Correct. Lola. And yeah, in a, I mean, he did some, uh, Disco, so he took from Ashford and Simpson track for his record in 77. So that's a self-titled one because this one came out in 78. Then he did a, a track called Over and Over. That's an Ashford and Simpson track at that time. And he was kind of sticking his foot into it because he actually did not like disco. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I was surprised to learn. Yeah, like he, but the thing about him is that, and I also want to be clear because one thing that I didn't mention um, yet, at least, is I also come to this as like, yes, uh, you know, I, I, you know, play music as a DJ. I'm also a therapist and, um, you know, also a clinical social worker. But I, for many, many years, I've also been a sexuality and gender educator. And, you know, you'll notice like we're saying, we're using like he pronouns and, I was going kind of back and forth thinking about this because of just where we're at kind of in the conversation around gender. And for some people who might have viewed 
or may view Sylvester now, they may be kind of like, huh, well, do we know, you know, kind of what Sylvester's standpoint was on that, like where Sylvester would be at this point and how Sylvester might identify himself now. And um, one of the things is that, you know, he always identified himself like as a man, he saw himself as a gay man, but he also wanted to play kind of like with gender and, and went for this androgynous look. And one of those, like why that's important is at this point, why I'm explaining this right now is because Eve, before 1977, that Sylvester album, he had two records that he did um, that are coined as Sylvester and the Hot Band. And he was going for actually like a more glam rock appeal. He was very much into like rock and roll. I think one yeah. of the tracks that he did is like a, there's a Graham Parsons track on like the second Sylvester and the Hot Band album called She. Then there's like a, Neil Young track that that the group did in 73. I think it's like Southern Southern Man, Southern Girl, something like that. So it's it's very interesting kind of his like journey, for, you know, into disco because he got to this point. He's like he wants to be a star. He wants to like make an impact. And it's like, well, disco is a thing. Not really into it, but let's see where this goes. I think I'm. I'm sort of with Sylvester. I listened to the bizarre, the album called Bizarre, the second album he put out that was kind of a rock album. Mm -hmm. I kind of preferred it. I, I don't like Joy. I don't want this disco stuff. <laughs> but I thought the voice was his voice was like kind of fascinating to to me, like mixed with that like rock and roll kind of vibe. It was, uh, I don't know, it was unique and very cool to me. So cool. Yeah, I think it's important that we started with that different sound because as we've been saying here, Sylvester is you know most remembered as a disco singer, but Sylvester was so much more than that, both musically and otherwise. And I, you know, we were talking a couple of days ago about how this is maybe the first pure disco record that we've actually featured. We've talked about many disco adjacent records and, you know, a lot of post disco and boogie funk and a lot of jazz funk that has a strong disco influence, but maybe the closest we've come to a straight up disco record was the Donna summer episode we did real early on. And, and what's interesting is he wasn't trying to make a disco record per se. He was just making hot, contemporary dance music within the kind of loose framework of what was popular right then, but he was still making it so personal and like, you know, making it his own thing and not trying to be something else or not just trying to fit in with the popular sound. And that's part of what gives this record a lasting appeal. And also why this sound was such a big influence on the styles of disco music that were coming after disco sort of faded just a year after this record came out. Well, with that in mind, how about we listen to another track? Yes. Can we? Can we? Yes. You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. The big hit song. We'll talk about it more when we come back. Side A, track one.
for my money, that's about as timeless as you can get for a disco single from 1978. Like it's certainly of the time, but man, it just, it hits just as hard today as it did then. What a great piece of music. It's futuristic. Yeah. Thanks in no small part to the synthesizer work of Pat Cowley. Yeah. He played a big role in making that song sound like what we hear because it was originally written as a ballad. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Which is more like there's an epilogue, a, a reprise of the song at the end of side one that's I think sounds more like as it was originally intended by Sylvester. Yeah. And from what I understand, Sylvester had recorded a demo version of it and Pat was listening to it and just started noodling on synthesizers and recorded some you know all those little synthesizer sounds and colorings onto the song and when sylvester heard he was like that's the song now perfect mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah in the liner notes sylvester thanks patrick cowley he says you have been a great inspiration i'll always love and be grateful to you for being right on time <laughs> so he, he he saw the value in what pat cowley did with this track I mean, and you think about also, I mean, the impact also that Pat had on this song and then, you know, foreshadowing for like their relationship as it continues. And it, they only had so many more years together from this time. But, you know, yeah, what what an influence. And and so he was right on time in so many ways for, for Sylvester and his career. But I think one of my favorite things about this is also like Sylvester ad lib like when he originally had done this it was like ad, li ad libs in the studio so he hadn't even like written down the words and it was only like whenever they came back to record it he had to kind of remember like oh right oh yeah that's what I said and like this is what this was so I really think like Pat yeah really really kind of drove it home for him like what this song the magnitude of this song what this song really was and what it could be and goodness it is exactly what y'all have said it it holds true in every way like i can only imagine being in a place like studio 54 or the loft like when this came out and i still every time i hear it when i'm out it still kind of generates this feeling within me like this has to feel still kind of like what it must have felt like hearing it then because it's timeless did any of you watch the video for this song i watched a live performance where it included this song in it, but I didn't see the video. So I found an interesting connection to the last episode that you were on, Lola. <gasps> you were last on the podcast talking about Level 42. What? Yes. And in that episode, we mentioned that Peter Christofferson from the industrial band Throbbing Gristle had directed a video for one of the songs on that album. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the video for You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, one of the dancers featured is Cozy Fanny Tootie from Throbbing Gristle. Nice. <laughs> so that's I, uh... the thinnest connection. <laughs> hey, but With that's so much buildup. I love it. Amazing. <laughs> that's what I live for. <laughs> I true. feel like Peter's just reveling in his own joy right now. <laughs> oh 
I thought for sure he was going to be like one of the members of level 42 is in the background of this one shot of the video, but no, it's it's even thinner than that. Oh I mean, the fact I... that I found either of those. Yeah, I mean, I still it's applaud amazing. the effort for sure. It's amazing. And I feel like there, there maybe this is like a new element y'all add to the show, but like that there's a different, like your voice, like there's a special effect every time, like your voice you you make these connections. I think there's a special effect that needs to be added to your voice or something. <laughs> we don't need Jeremy already adds effects whenever I sing. I don't That's think we true. want. I don't think we want to encourage more of that. <laughs> it's jarring for the listeners, I'm sure. No, they love it. They told me. <laughs> Just wait for. I th- so there's. I also so there's a connection also that I wanted to make because. The episode that I was on the first time, there was a joke that was made about Motown Philly back again. And I. Oh, yes. Yes. When you're you're on talking about the Jacksons. Indeed. And there is also a Motown connection to this record with talking about Harvey Fuqua. Harvey Fuqua. Mm hmm. Yep. And for folks who are not aware, um, Harvey Fuqua was married. Well, in his own merit, he was part of a group called um, Harvey and the Moon Glows. So he, you know, is, was an artist. Is an art? I don't actually know if Harvey is still alive. I hope he is. Do not know though. So let's just uh, died in two thousand ten. Yeah. Oh, thanks, y'all. Okay, knew I could count on you. So he was an artist in his own right, but he also married Barry Gordy's sister, and he was um, founder of Motown. Indeed. Thank you. Um, And was also, I think, in charge of artist development or something at one point. And so really got, you know, his feet wet with that. And then at one point he ends up getting, I think he ends up in California, which is where, of course, like I mentioned, you know, um, Sylvester is from. And at this point, Sylvester had left L.A. and was in San Francisco And that's really where he had gotten even more deeply within like his artistry with connecting to this crew called the Coquettes, which was like this avant-garde psychedelic hippie theater group that was a commune. And this was like before we make it to this record, of course, but just kind of giving you a little bit more history, how he gets connected with Harvey. He had kind of gone that route and got really much bigger than that crew. And, you know, ended up getting his, yeah, yeah. his group, he, right? He, he apparently, he apparently had to like apologize for how bad they were compared to how good he was at one of their performances. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. They made their way to New York because, so he moves to uh, San Francisco, like 1970. So at this point, I think he's like 22 or something like that. He'd been with the group for a little bit and, you know, he had his own, like his persona he had created that was in like this vein of like paying homage, to, like Bessie Smith and Josephine Baker and like, just like, incredible and then also playing on racial stereotypes in a way to like call attention to them and the ridiculousness of them and like just to be you know an educator in his own right around that but then you know eventually they do make their way they have their big like new york show and that was where like he (laughs) apologized um and there were so many people there i think i had heard at one point during the show it was so awful and like angela lansbury is like in the audience and was like you know, we're leaving and like, it makes like a big to do about it. And like people follow her out of the theater. (laughs) And 
yeah. so do what do as La- Angela Lansbury, as they say. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so, you know, that's how he eventually ends up becoming like, you know, the Sylvester and his hot band and, and makes his way to that. That doesn't, you know, that falls short. And then he, you know, eventually becomes a solo artist. But that was by way of Harvey Fuqua had been um, called to the attention of, of Sylvester because of Martha Wash. And Martha Wash, as was already mentioned, was one of the uh, two tons of fun along with Azora Rhodes. And so, you know, Harvey, along with Nancy Pitts, who was his uh, partner at the time, who also became like Sylvester's manager. So they were the ones who kind of like swooped in and like Nancy was just could not contain herself. She was like, this is the type of artist we need to go with because they had created Honey Records Productions, which is uh, also became like a sub-label of Fantasy Records. And so, you know, they found their star. And, you know, here here we are, like this history of, of this Motown connection there. And Harvey, uh, apparently, bring it back to You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, he apparently said about this song uh, when he heard it, he's like, this song is a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As soon as I saw Not wrong, as soon as I saw the name Harvey Fuqua, I was like, well, that's very familiar. And then I realized it's because he's the, he's the uncle of the director Antoine Fuqua who oh, did yes. uh, my favorite film of all time training day. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that movie way more than I'd like to admit. Really? <laughs> For some reason, it was just one that I put on when I didn't know what else to do. I just watched <laughs> Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington go at it. Do you guys um, know who the other famous member of Harvey Fuqua's band, The Moon Glows, was? No. I can't remember offhand. Harvey Fuqua was bandmates with Marvin Gaye. Harvey's the guy that introduced <laughs> Marvin Gaye to Barry Gordy. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So he's, yeah, Har- Harvey Fuqua is one of the key figures in the develop the in the development of Motown mm-hmm. and the career of Marvin Gaye. Yep. And he's he's also the nephew of Charlie Fuqua of the Ink Spots who I can't believe we haven't done an episode wow. on. Yeah, I think about that every once in a while how we uh, really need to do the Ink Spots. What a great band. Yeah. So Harvey Fuqua, he's the producer on this album along with Sylvester. Yeah, he was apparently working at Fantasy Records at this point. Which, of course, we we talked about Fantasy Records a whole bunch on our double episode on John Fogarty and Creedence Clearwater Revival because they were on Fantasy. And, of course, we focused on Saul Zantz on that of Fantasy. He did, As far as I could tell, he didn't play any role in Sylvester being on Fantasy. It was all Harvey Fuqua. Yeah, well, hopefully Harvey was able to secure him a solid deal as well. I didn't really oh, no. see any info oh, no. on that. Oh no, he 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 had to sue Fantasy for over two hundred thousand dollars they owed him. Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> not surprised. And he only got like twenty thousand of it. Of yeah. course, of course. So the the Fantasy shittiness continues. <laughs> <laughs> At least they're consistent, right? Yeah, if nothing else. And thank you for the uh, reminder about Marvin Gaye. I don't. I, don't think that I knew that piece about bandmate, but I do know that he has also apparently had said that um, is quoted as having said, like, there's two people who who've got it. And those two people, one is Marvin Gaye and the other person is Sylvester. So he felt very strongly about uh, Sylvester's star power. And with a track like we just heard, 
and others um, on this album and, and beyond, like, it's hard not to kind of, you know, agree that the star power is pretty phenomenal and the impact. Yeah. And it's honestly incredible that a, you know, feminine presenting gay black man in the seventies was able to be on multiple high profile TV appearances and have crossover chart success, just being his authentic self. It's incredible. It's something that is hardly even replicated that much today. You know, I mean, people are obviously standing on the shoulders of Sylvester and people like him blazing trails, but an accomplishment then and still is. 100. Well, how about we get into another song? What's the next selection? The next selection is another favorite, which is Dance Disco Heat. Yeah, another hit in the first single from the album. We're talking a little side A, track two. You got a match? The fabulous clothes. Look at all the fabulous people. You want to dance? Yes, I'd love to. Let's party a little bit. All right. That track very prominently features the vocals of Isora Rhodes Armstead and Martha Wash. Billed as two tons of fun, as we previously mentioned. And as Lola alluded to, did you allude to it? They became much better known for something else later on. Mm-hmm. I did. I just didn't say. As the Weather Girls. Yep. <laughs> you, you, you saved it for later. <laughs> I did. It's Raining Men. Sure. I mean, oh, wow. right? 
I mean, yeah. makes so much sense. And this by this point, you know, that they get to be the Weather Girls, that's like, that was 1982. So they had really moved beyond this point with Sylvester, like four years, and had made it on their own. Yeah, and then Martha Wash, she went on to become the queen of Clubland because she was the vocalist on a number of big, like late 80s, early 90s dance hits, like CNC Music Factory, gonna make you sweat everybody dance now whoa and a few for the italian house music group black box and as some may know some may not know she was uncredited for these appearances because the it's it's worth mentioning that both azara rhodes armstead and martha wash were heavier set women Mm -hmm. that was they were the ones apparently who as uh lola said Sylvester called them the girls, but they billed themselves as two tons of fun. They played into it. And, uh, but because of this, because of her weight, these artists who had her come in and record vocals for them, weren't going to feature her prominently in the music videos or on the artwork. In fact, they told her that these were just demos that she was recording. God. And so she sued and it, it really paved the way, like the legal action spurred legislation in the United States making vocal credits mandatory on albums and music videos. Wow, amazing. Hmm. Yeah, she's all over the these hits. <laughs> like like she's kind of like the most famous unknown vocalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's an article <laughs> about that in uh, Rolling Stone where she like you said there's, you know, like the Queen of Clubland, but that was really uh, more or less kind of after it had been brought to the attention that like, yes, she had been uncredited. And it's like, you, can you imagine? I mean, it's, you you bring up such a great point. Yes, it's about, this is like a full figured person, but it's, she's also like a full figured black woman. So it's like, this is brazen. Like you clearly are, uh, you, you, you drew a line in the sand and that was what you chose to do these different groups. And they, I think it's, um, black box, one of the girlfriends of one of the people in the group, they put her as the person in the video lip syncing to Martha's vocals. Like that was how brazen they were. They were having these models doing this instead. Yeah, CNC Music Factory had a model in the video mm-hmm. as well. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I was I had known of that previously, and then when I connect, made the connection that Martha Wash was the person, I was like, well, we have to talk about that on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of vocalists and uh, singing and things like that. I want to take just a couple minutes and really focus in on Sylvester's voice and vocal stylings. So I didn't mention before what my history with Sylvester is, but as someone who didn't grow up with disco and didn't really have a lot of working familiarity with dance music in general until, you know, my mid twenties, when I started really diving into this kind of stuff, the first Sylvester record I bought was a 12 inch single of his later big hit. Also featuring Patrick Cowley. Do you want to funk from 1982, which is also prominently featured on my all time favorite Christmas movie trading places. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, so I bought the 12 inch single. It doesn't have a picture on it. And I just kind of assumed that Sylvester must be the name of a band with a female lead singer. It wasn't until 
pretty recently that I was like, oh no, this is this is a male vocalist doing falsetto. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a really interesting video online that you can find with a, a quick search. I should have put the info in front of me, but there's a whole video breaking down Sylvester's voice. Sylvester was actually a baritone as his natural singing voice. So the majority of Sylvester recordings, he is singing in an intentional falsetto. And this is partly because it just fits with Sylvester's whole image, you know, a female presenting gay man. And the falsetto voice was like part of him just like owning this image and being his authentic self in front of everyone. But the interesting thing about singing in falsetto is it affects your voice in some interesting ways. Mostly you're not able to have as full sounding of a voice because you're not singing from your chest anymore which gives Sylvester a very unique sound to his voice in multiple ways. When you listen closely, it's almost like his voice is more vulnerable sounding. It breaks apart easier and it sounds sometimes like it could break apart at any point, but it also has this like interesting raw power to it that you don't hear from a lot of other vocalists. And part of the thing is that when he's singing, alongside Martha Wash and Isora Rhodes, they're singing in their natural register. So they have a much more full sound. So there's a lot of parts, especially in dance disco heat, where they kind of drown Sylvester out because his vocal style is, you know, just a much thinner presentation. I just thought that was, you know, an interesting uh, bit of inside info on the sound of Sylvester. Wow. Yeah. I had seen a clip of an interview with Martha Wash and she mentioned that uh, one of them sang the bass part and the other backup singer sang the middle and then Sylvester sang the high part always which is pretty wild but makes sense when you know they're kind of filling in that boom or whatever and then Sylvester's kind of floating up above it And we should also mention in Sylvester's favor, you know, we talked about Martha Wash not being, you know, on the videos and things like that. Every concert and live TV appearance you find of Sylvester singing with Two Tons of Fun, they are front and center with him. They are Mm -hmm. prominent on stage. He is dancing with them and they all just look so happy together on stage. I thank you for sharing that because I, I, it's like they, and they look just so magnificent. It's the, mm-hmm. what, like how powerful, I mean, it's like, they're like disco diva superheroes. Like they, <laughs> it's, it's so <laughs> magical to witness them and like the power, like just the energy that's bouncing off of them before they even open their mouths. And then when they do, it's like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> yeah. I definitely encourage our listeners to find some of their live material because it's intense. A lot of these songs are playing at like much faster tempos than the recordings and just putting so much energy into the performances. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're not household names. I mean, we could talk about this, uh, you know, for years and years, forever and ever. There's so many people, you know, we, we could wish to be household names. But just like thinking about like the impact of their voices alone and as well as like the influence that they've had on others. Uh, It's just, it, it just blows my mind. It really, really does. And yeah, I appreciate the breakdown of like 
just how their voices worked together. Cause that's not necessarily like, that's not necessarily my angle um, or how I have, I, I was not trained uh, vocally by any means, at least growing up, I attempted later in life, but I still am trying to figure that all out. And it's always fascinating to kind of hear folks um, journeys uh, in their vocal stylings. For sure. Well, Martha Wash continues to have a long and productive career, but Isora Rhodes Armstead, her partner in Two Tons of Fun slash The Weather Girls in 2004, passed away, as would Pat Cowley, who we mentioned, who was on the synthesizers, sequencers, and special effects. He was one of the early victims of AIDS. He died in 1982. Mm -hmm. And... Sadly, as you alluded to earlier, Lola, so it was just a few years later in 1988 that Sylvester would also succumb to the illness. Just thinking about that time, you know, pa Patrick, like you mentioned, was one of the early folks to, to succumb to, you know, the virus. And at the time, you know, around 81, when they first put the news out into the public around like what they thought it was at the time they were calling it grid, you know, so it's like gay related immunodeficiency disease. Right. So it's like very much putting like a target on a particular community. And I can't help but think about the terror that that put on the community that Sylvester was a part of and people who were such influential characters um, in the arts culture for forever and always, but like, especially at this point in time with disco and disco was very gay. It was very black. It was very, you know, uh, Latinx. It was, I mean, there were a lot of people of color in that scene and, and queer folks and trans folks. And it's like, here it is. They were giving so much of themselves to uh, arts and music and all of it. And then here, it is they're also going through this this panic. And I can't help but bring that up because I can only imagine what that felt like and what it can still feel like, you know, for folks today. Um, but especially at that time when there was so much that was unknown about it, except that there were many people who identified um in a particular way, um, sexually, and others who did not identify as gay who were getting it by way of blood transfusions and other ways. And so, you know, how terrifying and eventually, as you mentioned, yeah, Sylvester would, would also succumb in uh, 1988. Yeah. Yeah. And I had read that Sylvester's partner, I think in 1985, tested positive for AIDS. So at mm -hmm. that point, Sylvester kind of knew that he either had it or it was inevitable and chose to not get his blood tested mm -hmm. and just kept performing and putting out records as long as he possibly could. It's it's very likely that his last two records, Mutual Attraction and M1015, were while he was ill. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And he left and 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 I actually I did not know this piece and I am I'm very heartened by this knowledge um, is that he apparently left his future royalties of his work to um, HIV and AIDS charities in San Francisco. Yep. Yep. So that's still in place today. Mm -hmm. Well, Sean, we are curious to find out. We know you were hyped on this album. What did you find for recommended similar albums? Yeah, I got some good ones here. 
you know, going back to what Jeremy said earlier about disco being a blind spot, disco has been a blind spot for me for a while as well. When I was getting into stuff similar to this, I kind of naturally gravitated towards the post-disco boogie sound more. But over the past year, especially DJing the disco night at the Trestle here in Philadelphia, I've been just really digging into disco and loving it and just finding so much stuff that was a blind spot for me before. And one of the things that attracts me to disco so much is just the intense joy that it encompasses. And a lot of that is, you know, that joy is from people who are not living easy lives, but choosing to be joyful as much as they possibly can. And it's such an intense, wonderful spirit to hear in music. So three disco records that I think have some similarity in sound and aesthetic to this and are great points to jump off if you as well want to dig into disco some more. First up, Greg Diamond's Hot Butterfly from 1978. Do you know that one, Lola? I don't. I only know a little bit about Greg Diamond. I couldn't find if Greg identified as gay, but all all signs point towards yes. Greg was part of Joe Bryath's backing band. Does anybody know who Joe Bryath is? No, I can't say I do. Joe Bryath, an early, um, openly gay glam rock artist. And then Greg <laughs> went into the disco field after that. But... Um, I that just I wanted to uh I laughed when you said that because I thought about the anecdote of when David Bowie performed in San yes. Francisco and was his performance was like underattended and he said, "You know what? I don't need to come to San Francisco. They already have Sylvester." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Incredible. <laughs> All right, second recommendation, Gary's Gang, Keep on Dancing from 1979. This record and band is a favorite of many of the Trestle DJs and gets played frequently, but it's a good example of a very um, kind of electro precursor to high energy type sound, which is a thing that Sylvester was famous for. We didn't really get into that a whole lot. Yeah, we didn't really talk about high NRG at all. (laughs) There's, I mean, I, I hope we've at least interested people in the wonderful world of Sylvester because there's so much more to learn. There's a lot of other records. There's more details to his amazing life, and we just can't say enough good things about Sylvester. But yeah, Gary's Gang, Keep On Dancing from 1979, excellent high energy type disco sound last recommendation and one that i'm pretty sure lola is all about shalimar disco gardens from 1978 (laughs) which uh jody watley who we previously featured was part of shalimar yeah yep yep yeah and her dance and her uh and jeffrey daniel who was also on soul train as a dancer with her nice and uh leon silvers Mm -hmm. was involved as well (laughs) many previously discussed artists uh but yeah shalimar disco gardens same year as this um a little more maybe theatrical sounding at times but there's definitely some sylvester crossover some of the songs off that sound like they could have just been a song that sylvester sang and it would have worked just as well so definite similarities there and then one last one musically they're very different but comparing the aesthetic and life story and especially 
the interest in rock music, but be more famous as a disco star. I was thinking a lot about that self-titled Nona Hendrix album from 77 that we talked about. Oh, yeah. Nona Hendrix, of course, being um, one of the members and later primary songwriter of the group LaBelle. Huge disco group with, you know, gay anthems. And Nona was a gay performer who her first solo album was, you know, very kind of hard rock. And it didn't work. It didn't sell. And then went back into the disco adjacent dance music field later on and had some later hits as well. But another underappreciated artist that people should dig into. But continues to be an icon in the queer community, which mm-hmm. I love. Mm-hmm. Well, Sean, thank you so much. Those are all the, the, the great recommendations. I know some of them and others are totally new to me. So myself and our listeners can keep an eye out for those in the dollar bins across the world. <laughs> and I imagine I, we're going to be probably featuring a little more disco going forward on the podcast. So look out for that. Yeah. Look out or look out for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lola, thank you so much. Do you have anything that you would like to communicate to our listeners about things you're up to or where they can find more information out on you in the, all that you do out in the world. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. Um, one thing before I get to that, I, I just want to second what Sean had said about, you know, I hope that this has interested folks to dive more into Sylvester's life. I mean, we could have many, many, many episodes uh, just getting into Sylvester's bio. And so, you know, there's much that was not featured, um, but you get an opportunity to learn that uh, for yourself and to dig into the, you know, on that, go on that journey uh, to learn about this incredible human and the many incredible songs that they created. But uh, if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram um, at Lola Kinks Music, where I share here and there just like tidbits about music that brings me joy or things that I'm learning about new music or anything like that. And also, you know, dates um, when I'm playing around town. So you can stay tuned there. And I just am so grateful to have been invited back. Thanks, y'all. Our pleasure. Well, it won't be the last time. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks for coming back. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And if you're in the city, if you're in the city of Philadelphia at any point, you might be able to have an opportunity to hang with both DJ Hardbargain, Sean Hartman, co-host here, and or Lola Kinks at the Trestle Inn, <laughs> which is a, a happening spot. <laughs> Keeps getting mentioned on this show now. Yeah. I, yeah. Are we getting sponsor money or something? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to have a meeting soon, I think. Yeah. Also, I mean, it, it's very likely that the owners are going to listen to this episode because they're big fans of the podcast, so... We have to talk sponsorship, guys. Hi, all. <laughs> the Freemasons hey. are going to end. <laughs> about just like next time Peter and I are there, just don't hassle us when we're trying to get him free. Can we go? For- <laughs> <laughs> just- <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Automatic pass for I'd buy that for a dollar co-hosts. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were going to get out of here on the song "Grateful." which starts off side two of this fantastic record. We didn't even talk about the strange cover uh, that's on step two with the 
kicking over of the glass with contents in it. And I think there's a there's some kind of foot fetish going on here, but I, I, I didn't know what to make of this. My wife, Ellen, didn't either. This record arrived and she was like, that's an interesting cover. <laughs> but our listeners can spend more time with that. Uh, when they purchase this record, you'll, you'll find this in the dollar bins. Uh, but Grateful, the last song we're going to go out on, was written by Sylvester along with Michael C. Finden, who provided the organ, electric, piano, and clavinet on this album. And, yeah, Lola, was there any particular reason you wanted to uh, feature this one? Yeah. Other than that it's just another jam? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think going into this year, one of the things I think at this point in my life, because one thing we didn't mention is that, you know, Sylvester only made it to, to 41 years old. He did he did a lot in those 41 years, but it was 41 when he died. And I am very close to that age. And, you know, I have a, I've taken in this kind of philosophy of of like gratitude, like that, how important that is in this life. And so that it inspired me. And that's what I thought felt good for going out on. Grateful. That's a good positive note to leave on, which I think that's how Sylvester would want it. So all right, fantastic. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to a, yet another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We're going to get out of here. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Pete Jeremy Ruggles. <laughs> my name is Pete Sean Hartman. Um, my name is Pete Lola Kings. <laughs> Everybody's Peter tonight. <laughs> Thanks for playing along. <laughs> <laughs>